Hi, everybody. I'm Sess Busby, editor of Flying Solo. Welcome to our weekly podcast where we step inside the minds and lives of soloists and small business owners. When it comes to personal finance and money management, Steve McKnight is an expert. He's a self-made multimillionaire, real estate mogul and financial educator. He joins us to share insider tips from his book, Money Magnet, and gives us some invaluable insights into attracting money, building wealth and creating a purpose-driven financial future. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the show. Hi, and thanks for having me. Ah, you're most, most welcome. I'm really excited to be getting into the nitty gritty of your expertise because it's all about wealth creation. And I'm sure that's something that a lot of our listeners will will be keen to get the dirt on. So um, were you the kid that was always saving your pennies? Were you, were you a good little saver when you were a child? Oh, no one's ever asked me that. That's a... That's a really interesting question out of the gate. I never used to get that much pocket money. There was there was not much money in my home growing up. Dad sold trucks for a living. Mum used to teach the piano after school for a bit of extra housekeeping cash. I think we used to get 20 cents a week, which doesn't sound like much. Probably shows my age a bit, but that used to buy a pretty big bag of lollies. And whenever we needed extra cash, we would go and ask mum. Typically, uh, could we could we sort of have a little bit of extra money to do something? And if we could, we would get it. And if there wasn't much money around, we always said no. And yeah, because there was very little money, there was very little ability to save. Hmm, interesting. And yet, it seems like you've become pretty good at saving and investing. So, how much how much do you think um, your parents' money habits kind of played into how you approach money today? Mm, very much so. And that's a point that I make in, in the book Money Magnet, that you inherit your parents' financial DNA often without knowing it. And then that really does shape the way you think and act about money. What I call your financial IQ and your financial EQ, the way you think and act IQ and your feelings and emotions EQ. And in my case, I think dad growing up had a profound impact on me. His parents never had much money. So dad is known as someone who's very tight with his money, saves money, doesn't spend it willy nilly. Whereas mum is quite the opposite. Mum's parents were both quite well off and she's far more generous with her money. And so I'm this weird Frankenstein between dad and his presiding mindset to save and mum and her presiding mindset to be generous. I'm a bit each way. <laughs> so how did that play out in your in your like teenage and, and young adult years? Mm. I never really invested till I started work as an accountant and was getting a little bit of extra money. And my first investment, again, no one's really ever asked me about this, but my first investment was actually a term deposit. And I remember getting, it was about 6 or 7% interest at the time and thinking, wow, this is actually a couple hundred bucks a month is actually a fair bit of money. And from there, uh, I didn't really know much about property investing, which is what has actually been my area of expertise. But in May 1999, after attending a, a wealth creation seminar, I ended up buying my own first investment property, a ex-commission home in the outskirts of Ballarat for $44,000. Uh, 
and renting it for $120, $125 a week, which provided a positive cash flow outcome. And I was like, wow, I can own real estate and get paid for it. This is like playing Monopoly in real life. How good's this? <laughs> Sounds pretty good, probably especially to young people trying to get into the property market at the moment. They'd be thinking of that 44000 and going, geez, that's not even my deposit these days. No, it's probably not even the stamp duty for some people. But it's contextual. So oh, if only I had been alive back when $44,000 properties existed, everyone faces the challenges of their generation. And the challenges for my generation were that $44,000 houses went everywhere. It was very hard to get finance, unlike the easier financing of today. And even then, $10,000 salaries were lower. There was only so much property you could afford. And becoming an entrepreneur and finding new ways to buy real estate with low money down was part of my success story. Mm. So where did that interest in finance and also... um real estate and property, where did that come from to begin with? Back to mum and dad. Mum and dad used to really fight about money because dad had his mindset of saving every penny and there may not be enough and mum was more generous and more willing and wanting to spend and that caused a lot of friction in their marriage. I'm the third child. I'm the peacemaker. I think that had a part to play in it and I also think me becoming an accountant was a sort of response to seeing the ongoing money hassles that mum and dad faced and really wanting superior knowledge in my own life so I I didn't replicate what they experienced. Mm. So do you think that's a conversation before you are going to long-term relationship with someone? Uh, Should we be having conversations about money? Because as you said, it caused a lot of friction for your parents. Yeah, I think so. I remember doing marriage counselling or pre-marriage counselling with my wife. We've just celebrated our 24th wedding anniversary yesterday, actually. Hip, hip, hooray. (laughs) But I remember us before we were allowed to get married in the church where we got married, they they said, you've got to do this pre-marriage counselling. And they asked a lot of questions around how many kids do you want? What are your thoughts and attitudes about money? And while my wife and I were broadly on the same page, there were some issues I remember that came up that we had to talk through. Because everyone inherits different DNA, financial DNA and actual DNA from their parents, the assumptions that go into a relationship on who's going to do what and how the money is going to be earned and spent are potentially dangerous because if those assumptions aren't right, then that can cause fractures and ultimately a broken marriage. Mm. So is there a way to change that DNA? Like, can you change your money mindset? Yes. And this is an essential message that I really want to get out to everyone, that to become a money magnet is not an inherited skill. It's a learned skill. And if you are interested in becoming better at making, managing and multiplying your money, then the first step is to seek help. And the way that you seek help is that you start reading books like Money Magnet to gain new ideas and new perspectives about how those people who are good at making, managing and multiplying their money and making it count, i.e. matter and meaningful, 
learning from those people and saying, well, how did they do it? And how can I replicate in my own life the things that fit that I want to try on as well and see if I can get them working for me? I think what um, was interesting there as well, you don't want to be, you know, King Midas, everything turns to gold. You want your money to have some purpose. I'm big on that because I know lots of people who are very wealthy and deeply upset. They have self-esteem issues. Ultimately, in many cases, their wealth is a manifestation of their own insecurity, their need and desire to want to impress people who might often be dead but they've got such an expectation of trying to win their praise and favour. You know, the, the parent that never said, I'm proud of you, and they're still trying to, to win that long after the parent has gone, creates a, a massive rod for their own back. It's, it's the question we all have to answer, how much is enough? And what I talk about again in the book are these two quests that we go on or mountains that we have to climb the survival mountain and making sure that we've got enough to feel that we're able to survive financially. Unfortunately, the pension is a below poverty payment that we don't want to end up on. But the second mountain is the significance mountain, which is how do I make my life count so that when I'm gone, the people who are left behind will remember me fondly and I'll be missed. And ultimately, we spend our time and money trying to get survival sorted when really what we should be doing is in conjunction with that, spending our time and money investing in our significance as well. And that's the bit in the book that I talk about making your money count. Hmm. So is that about leaving a legacy in a way? Partly leaving a legacy and we all leave a legacy whether we know it or not. It's just whether it's a positive legacy that endures or a negative legacy that people want to forget. And I really think that the best legacies, and I use the example of Alfred Nobel in the book, the best legacies are those that are also self-funded because otherwise a legacy is only as good as the, the money and the people who can carry it on. And if there's not money and people to carry it on, then it's probably only going to last a couple of years or a generation at max. Mm. So if we're kind of stuck in this survival mode, like moving from paycheck to paycheck, how do we shift that? The first step is to cast a vision for a different financial future. The best indicator of where you're going to be financially in 10 years' time is where you are right now because where you are right now is the consequence or the result of your money habits played out over time. And like I say in the book, the more you do of what you've done, the more you get of what you've got. And if you're not happy with what you've got at the moment, then you have to change something in the equation of life or you have to acquire a new money habit that you don't have now or stop a, a poor money habit that you're doing in order to arrive at a different outcome. And it's that casting of financial vision for your financial future and then thinking, oh, well, I don't have the skills to achieve that. What skills do I need to go out and acquire? That's your first step to turning things around. So what are typically some poor habits that you can take some simple steps to change? The first one is, as you mentioned before, living day to day without a plan and a purpose. 
the Bible says, without a vision, the people perish. And I think that's really true, that if we don't have a reason for investing in a better financial future, we'll just live for the moment. We'll live for now. Why would you delay gratification today when you have no reason to delay gratification? And it's that hope of a better and brighter financial future that gives us the context to start making sacrifices and delaying gratification today. And you'll know if you look at your bank account at the end of the month and compare it to the start of the month, you're either money repellent and you've got more money, uh, you've got less money, or you're money attractive and you've got more money. And so right now you'll know whether your money are attractive and the quality of your money habits by simply looking at your results. Now, what we need to do is we need to do these three things. We need to make money. So we want to make the most money in the quickest time for the least risk and lowest aggravation. We need to manage our money better. And surprise, surprise, people who don't know how to manage their money tend to do a poor job of it. And then we need to have to learn how to multiply our money. And the multiplying of the money, again, people think, oh, I'm not an accountant. I'm not a financial planner. I'm not smart enough to do this. Well, let me give you this hope. I was so mathematically challenged in high school that my school that I went to told me that I wasn't allowed to do year 12 maths in case I failed and brought down their pass average. So if this failed math student who could only do year 11 veggie maths is able to make a success of their financial future, I think it's possible for everyone who has an interest in doing so. So how did you change that? What was the, the, the things that you did? Yeah, exactly as I advocate others do. Learn from people who have been successful. Read widely. Yes, unfortunately, there are some get-rich seminars. You may end up at a couple of them. But if you, if you go out to these seminars and you think, well, who is the person talking? Do they have runs on the board? Have they got demonstrable success? What can I learn from them? I used to go to these seminars and think, can I learn just one new thing? Can I read this book and learn just one new thing? We often look at trying to get an outcome before we've put in the effort. We all know that doesn't work. It's a bit like looking at a fire and saying, give me warmth and then I'll put wood on you. What we have to do before we can invest in getting a different outcome is first invest in ourselves. And that comes from increasing our awareness and building better money habits. So is there a, a formula, if you like, to wealth creation? There are actually lots of formulas to wealth creation. And one of them, which is what I call the recipe for getting rich, is actually taught in about year 10 maths. But they don't teach it the right way. They don't tell you, hey, here's a formula that if you can apply over your life, you're going to end up like wildly rich. And that formula takes the three components. You know, there are only three that you need to be able to understand and put in the right order to attract money. And those three elements, which again are all covered in the book, are the ability to spend less than you earn. So you've got capital to invest, number one. Number two is return and risk of return are related. So you need to understand that risk return relationship and how skill is the antidote to risk. And the third point, possibly the most important point because it's the most powerful in the equation is time. The less time that you have available, the more you need in capital and the higher the return needs to be. So those three elements, capital, return and time are all variable. So if you've got less than one, you need more of the others. 
So if you're approaching retirement age, then up the ante on the other things. Well, even better, don't leave it till retirement age to start taking action. The earlier you can master these skills in life, you'll be able to let time and trend be your friend. The later you leave it, the harder it's going to be. So don't delay. Start learning these skills as soon as possible. Pass this knowledge on to your family, your friends, especially your children, so that they're going to be able to benefit from the power of time. So you've made a lot of your um, your wealth through your property investments. What would be your, your top three, say, investing tips? Well, I've been able to make money out of real estate, but I don't necessarily favour real estate as the be-all and end-all. To me, real estate investing was first and foremost the vehicle for creating wealth. Some people are better off at share investing. Some people these days, I'm not one of them, but may be able to understand things like crypto and and your newer type investments. I'm a bit of a fossil now. I, I prefer things that I can see and touch and quite like playing Monopoly as a kid, so I understand it. I and, and that would be one of my one of the points that I would make. When you invest, make sure you invest in something that you understand, not something that you don't understand. But if you're after three tips that pretty much anyone can apply to their own situation and improve their financial habits, the first one I'd say is what gets measured gets managed. If you're not measuring anything, if you're not measuring the money coming into your account or the money going out of your account and you're just flying blind, as it were, then, yeah, it's time to stop that. And it's time to just keep track of what's coming in and going out. So what gets measured gets managed. If you want to be a better manager, you need to be a better measurer. The second thing I would say is that if you can invest in the skills to learn how to make your money multiply by getting a higher return without necessarily taking on a higher risk, then you'll be able to access investments that others can't and get higher returns on your money, i.e. make your money work harder for you than the rest of the population. And that's been one of my secrets of success. The third thing I'd say is the importance of accountability. Often when we're not accountable to anyone, we can convince ourselves to do anything. And that comes back to the point you made before about often in relationships, we've got both parties not accountable to each other. And so instead of working together, they end up in competition with one another. Accountability is never fun. It's like putting on a saddle on a horse. But people I've found who aren't accountable tend to really underperform financially. So if that happens to be you, how can you make sure that you are being more accountable? How do you make sure you're living within your means, that you, you've got a plan for the future? comes back to what gets measured gets managed. And ultimately, accountability is about, it's, it's kind of like integrity. It's the things you do when no one else is watching. Accountability are the things you submit yourself to even when you feel you don't really have to, to ensure you, you stay disciplined in the way that you act and react around money so that you're not wasting your money. Instead of being indulgent and spending on a whim, or worse, often retail therapy masks further unhappiness in life, what we want to try and do is become masters of money rather than letting money master us. And again, one of the first steps you can do is cast a new vision for a new financial future and then start measuring and managing your money better.
So when you say cast a new vision, are you talking vision board? Are you talking writing out a plan? What What do you mean? I think we all approach vision a bit differently. It can be whatever you want. If you're someone that is more detail orientated and more planned and purposeful, yeah, definitely put your vision board up there, start sticking things on. It's really about trying to create a different pathway through life than ending up in debt and then living day to day, repaying that debt and feeling like you're financially trapped rather than empowered. In my case, I didn't have a vision board. I had a bit of paper on it that said I wanted 250000 by 9 May 2004, which was my 32nd birthday. And $250,000 of investment income before tax would have been enough to never have to work as an accountant and neither my wife works as an accountant again. That was enough of a vision board and I stuck it on a wall that I saw every day and that was my purpose for continuing to make sacrifices and delay gratification. To achieve that goal wasn't just a sum of money, it was the freedom from having to work. And because I didn't like accounting so much and I wanted to get out of it because I was having stress-related illness, that financial goal would trigger a non-financial goal, which was so important to me that it provided a context for the decisions I needed to make, which was greater than the benefit I could have got temporarily by spending immediately. It's interesting you bring up that gratification thing because I think that's probably one of the biggest hurdles for people. But we are in such a um, consumer-driven society like that, that consumption is everything. Everything is like, I want it now. So it probably is one of the most difficult habits to break. So how did you break that? Well, what I would say in response to what you just mentioned there is that today we exist in the world of influencers. And yes, we've always had influencers. We've had celebrity endorsements going back through time and people we've looked up at getting paid Hollywood actors and things like that for saying, use this product and do this thing. But today, it seems that people can become influencers by gaming social media. And we've got, if someone's leading you, the question I would always ask is, where are they taking me to? And if you're being influenced by someone and being led by someone, how are they influencing you and where are you being led to? And when you ask that question, often it's like, well, they're not leading me anywhere. They're telling me I'd be happier if I had this perfume or owned this handbag or was wearing these shoes or owned this sporting thing, whatever it might be. But we have to ask ourselves, are we really substituting tomorrow's happiness and financial empowerment for today's temporary happiness and fleeting feeling like we're enjoying our money. And it's that ability to be able to look into tomorrow and saying, hey, is making this decision going to get me closer to my goal or push me further from my goal? And that wisdom of being able to see the consequences of our habits and actions today and how they'll impact us tomorrow. A lot of people lack that. They think, oh, tomorrow will look after itself. I'll just buy this thing today. And my my instant happiness is more important than my potential living in poverty for decades when I no longer work for income. And it's a trap. It's even It's even a bigger trap when people borrow money to fund a consumption habit 
and then end up having to work years of their life to pay off their consumption habit and losing their flexibility and freedom in doing so. Well, let's hope our listeners don't fall into that trap. It's the default. People are often in it. I mean, the the quickest test to determine whether or not you've been snared in a debt trap is just to ask yourself, do I have debt? And if the answer is yes, then, hey, there's no such thing as good debt or bad debt. There's only bad debt and worse debt. And yes, you might get into debt to get out of debt if it's for an investment purpose. But if you're in consumer debt, credit card debt, buy now, pay later debt, personal loan, etc., then you need to start working on better money habits because those habits that have got you into debt will just get you into more and more debt as you earn more and more money and will probably lead you into a situation later in life where you'll be asset rich but income poor, which means you might end up with a house you've paid off, but you're going to struggle for income. And I can tell you that the pension is below the poverty line. And so we need to create a situation. And if we don't do it, we'll end up here. So if we don't intervene, this is what life is likely to look like. Living the latter years of your life or working till you're 65 or 70 and then living the latter years of your life without much money. And that's not financially empowered. That's financially disempowered. So start taking action, learn those new habits, realize you've made mistakes if you've made them and adjust while you've got time on your side. I'd just also like to touch back on um, something you mentioned earlier, like making sure that, you know, your your money has meaning. And you um, you do a lot of philanthropy as well with your money. You, you have an organisation, Tree Change. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I lived in America for a year as a bit of a life experience with my wife and kids. And we came back and I was like, oh, just look, I want to do something a legacy project, something really meaningful with my money. What can I do? And so I went and bought 1,500 acres of cleared land in northeast Victoria. And on that land, using the money that I've made from real estate and also the royalties from book sales, I've bought 400,000 trees thus far to plant a permanent new native forest on that cleared land. And frankly, it's the hardest thing I've ever done I've made some giant mistakes in doing so. I've also signed up to do a diploma of land conservation and ecosystems management because one of the things that I'm passionate about, passionate about using my money to further, is to try and learn from the mistakes we've made in the past about clearing land and getting new permanent native forests back up and running, not only for a cleaner, greener future, but also to restore some of the damage that we've done to the ecosystems around the country. So that's what Tree Change is, treechange.com. That's my uh, little project where if people are interested, they can join me in sponsoring the planting of new native forests or offsetting their carbon or just putting their hand up and saying, hey, this sounds like a good cause. I'd like to volunteer and be a part of it as well. Spreading the message and saying to people, because often people don't know what they can do and how they can get involved. Hey, here's what I'm doing. If this sounds of interest to you, you can partner with me on it. Creates a mechanism and a way for people who would otherwise feel disempowered to add significance in their life. And what I've realized is the more significant you feel, the happier you'll be. Mm. Wise words, Steve. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Now, where can everyone get your book? 
The book, Money Magnet, if you were to go online, whether it's Amazon or Booktopia, perhaps Demix or some other book reseller, it's probably there. And I'm pretty sure if you're walking past a bookstore, the old bricks and mortar type, you'll be able to pop in and I'll have a copy. If not, you can ask for it and they'll get it in. Awesome. Thank you for joining me, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.